Uh, just raise your hand and we'll put one in your hand. Galatians chapter 1. And if you could, I don't do this a lot, but turn with me also to Acts chapter 26. Uh, if you're in Galatians, it should be marked if it, if it just gave you a Bible, but Acts would be to your left. So go back through First uh, and Second Corinthians and um, past Romans, taking a left-hand turn, you should get to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 26, and hold your place there in Acts 26. We will read Galatians chapter 1, verse 11 and 12 first, then I want to read a few verses in Acts that um, will help shed some additional light on what we're reading in Galatians 1. So Galatians 1 first, verse 11 and 12, and then we'll turn over to Acts 26. Starting verse 11, Galatians 1, but I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. You could underline that in your Bible. If you ever have people that say, well, that's your opinion. It's not. I am not smart enough to come up with a gospel. And if I could, I would have never dreamed up what God came up with. Would you? Verse 12, Paul writes, For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now turn with me to Acts 26. Paul recounts his coming to Christ and the revelation that he speaks of here. And he starts in verse 12. He was standing before uh, King Agrippa. And this is what he says. Starting in verse 12, when I was thus occupied as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest. Now, Paul was heading to Damascus to do what? To take Christians prisoner and drag them back to Jerusalem to stand trial and throw them into prison. He was a highly motivated man. He would have actually empathized with the kind of zeal that, let's say, ISIS has to pursue their mission Paul was equally determined that Christians must be brought to judgment. So he was heading to Damascus to imprison Christians. Uh, he would not have enjoyed my ministry or any other pastors preaching the gospel. He would have wanted to put me in prison, and that's what he was there to do. Verse 13, at midday, O king, along the road, and we were in Israel, we could actually see the remnants still of the road to Damascus. You can actually see where... Uh, these you know, couple thousand years, there's still a swath that goes from Israel up to Damascus. At midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. Aren't you glad that Jesus has this kind of power? Amen. 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 And, when I, and when we had all fallen to the ground, everyone fell to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Jesus speaks Hebrew, by the way. He speaks other languages, too. But he spoke to Paul in Hebrew because he came as a Jewish Messiah, and Paul thought that he was the guardian of real Judaism. And so Jesus speaks to him in the Jewish tongue. He speaks to him in Hebrew. Saul, Saul. Remember, his name was not Paul at this time. It was still Saul. He was named after the king, first king of Israel. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. You know, these um, apparatus that are behind the oxen, that uh, hard to kick against the goads. He says, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 
But rise and stand to your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people. What a weird concept from Paul. He thought he was the archetype of the Jewish people. But he said, I'm going to deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles. He doesn't know what this means because someday Jews would hate Paul and Gentiles would hate Paul. As of yet, the only people that really hated Paul uh, were, well, I don't, the Christians didn't hate him. They, just, they were afraid of him. But he goes on to say, to whom I now send you. That means Gentiles. Jesus said, I'm going to send you to Gentiles. Now, Paul despised the unclean Gentiles. But this is who God's going to send him to. To open their eyes, verse 18, this is one of my favorite verses in all the scripture. I love verse 18. You can read this to people when you're sharing their faith. To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Jesus preaches a powerful mini-sermon, doesn't he? Right to Paul. So Jesus grabs Paul with his blinding light. He comes down out of heaven, stops Paul on the road to Damascus, blinds him. Paul drops to the ground. All the men drop to the ground. They all hear a sound, but Paul doesn't just hear a sound. Actually, there's, there's three times this story is recorded. Paul doesn't just hear a sound. He actually hears Jesus speaking to him in Hebrew. And beyond that, we believe that Paul actually sees Jesus. And the reason why he's the only one of that group that's blind for the next few days is because he actually, Jesus just unveils a tiny bit of his glory, which is enough to blind him for three days. If Jesus wanted to give him all of his glory, he would never see again. But he gives him just enough, and it's, it's brighter than the sun in its full strength. And Paul sees not only the light, but we believe, and I believe, that he actually sees the face of Jesus for just a glimpse, and he's completely dumbfounded. He's completely bankrupt. He's completely emptied of himself on the ground. And he's ready to listen. Even though he's heard the message of Jesus before, he's ready to listen now. Let's turn back to Galatians chapter 1. The conversion of the Apostle Paul, you may or may not know this, but it's the second most recorded event in the entire New Testament. Second most recorded event in the New Testament. Uh, number one, of course, is the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's recorded in all four Gospels. Many pastors, many theologians, and scholars have pondered and hypothesized why the conversion of Paul is so prominent in Scripture. Peter, James, John, the other apostles, they each went on to be mighty men of God. And... Um, God used them in great and powerful ways, each of their ministries. But their coming to Christ is recorded, it's just a little brief mention in the Gospels of how they came to know the Lord. But Paul's is not only mentioned three times, but we get this account of it in detail. The details of this uh, Damascus Road conversion of Paul are recorded three times in the book of Acts, but yet Paul, in addition to his actual conversion details, we also see Paul refer to his conversion a number of other times, as we see here in Galatians 1. He's referring back to that day when he received the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he turned from darkness to light. 
Without question, I think we would all have to agree that the Holy Spirit has a lot to say about the call and the transformation of Paul. Why? Why does God dedicate this amount of detail to one man who was not the Savior? Paul was arrested by the Savior, but he still has a lot to say about Paul's life and his conversion. One church historian, J.L. Herbert, said this. He said, in all the history of Christianity, no single conversion to Christ carried with it such momentous results to the whole world as that of Saul the persecutor, afterwards Paul the apostle. He was Saul the persecutor, became Paul the apostle. There are no doubt many reasons for the emphasis of Paul's conversion testimony, but let me give you four observable reasons that still resonate to this very day. If you're taking notes, let me give you four reasons uh, and there's more than four, but I'm just giving you four reasons uh, that we can observe today that Paul's conversion would have the kind of impact that it still continues to have. Number one, Paul's conversion was a mighty demonstration of God's power. In meaning this, that God can change anyone with no exceptions. The most wicked person you can think of on planet Earth, God can save and radically change. Now that bothers us at time. It bothered Jonah to the point that he said, I will not go preach to Ninevites. Right? He thought if anyone deserved to die, it was Ninevites. But Paul is a proof, he's an archetype of the fact that anyone can be saved. So number one... Paul's conversion was a mighty demonstration of God's power. Number two, Paul's conversion and life was the anointed vessel. His life would become the anointed vessel that God would use in sending the gospel to the Gentiles and to the four corners of the earth. So Paul would be the tip of the arrow, if you will, the tip of the spear, to reaching beyond Jerusalem, Gentiles of every color, tribe, and tongue around the world, Paul would be the tip of that. The gospel would be the power, but Paul would be the first vessel that would be used in this way. Would you agree with me that Moses was a unique vessel as well? I mean, God could have chosen Aaron, but he didn't choose Aaron. He could have chosen lots of people. He could have used Joseph, although Joseph was a specific, unique ministry as well, saving people, but Moses had a specific calling. Paul has this very specific calling. Number three, Paul's conversion is a permanent demonstration that with salvation comes a new plan and a new roadmap for every life. With anyone that gets saved, God has a new roadmap for your life. You might be sketching out your plan, but when you get saved, God takes your plan into the wastebasket and he gives you new marching orders. Paul's were radically different marching orders. You mean I'm not supposed to imprison Christians anymore? No, you're supposed to join them. Actually, you would actually join them in prison someday. Number four of these um, observable reasons, number four, Paul was the only apostle called after Jesus returned to heaven. And it was imperative that the supernatural means of his calling were understood by the entire church. Why? Well, because Paul was going to write a sizable portion of the New Testament, and, and God was making sure that it was well understood that this man 
though he was not there with the original apostles, was every bit the apostle they were. So his supernatural calling was emphasized by the Holy Spirit and magnified to a place that it would not be in any way misunderstood that, no, Paul has been given authority by me. If you're taking notes, as you see on the screen, uh, the title of our time, the word today is The Call of Paul, uh, the Lord's Apostle. But I could give this title for all of us, including myself. You could put yourself for this title and say something like this, The Call of You, the Lord's Servant. The Call of You, the Lord's Servant. See, Paul has a unique calling, but each of us are unique, just like our fingerprints the number of hairs on our head. God has a unique calling for us as well. And we, though we may not be apostles, we're all called to be his servant. Now, as we look at the text here, and we understand going back to, if you were at the beginning of our study in Galatians, um, we've, we've uh, covered verses 1 through 10 thus far. Understand that the deceptive voices, remember the voices that had come to Galatia, they had added to the gospel. They had distorted the gospel. They had planted fear and anxiety in the hearts of believers that thought they were saved by the simple saving faith of Jesus, and then they were told, no, 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 you've got a lot of other stuff you've got to add. If you want to make it to heaven, you've got a lot of Judaism you need to start practicing. And as Gentiles, uh, they didn't know, and they immediately began to adopt these additions to the gospel. Now, these uh, deceptive voices that had come to the churches there, they had subverted not only the gospel, but in the process of subverting the gospel, it appears they also sabotaged Paul's authority and his credibility, and this is how they were able to add to the gospel. Because if you can say, look, the guy who's been teaching you doesn't know what he's talking about, is not really an apostle, He's not really called by God, and therefore we're here to correct his novice ways or his unscriptural ways. Apparently, Paul, it's pretty comical, Paul knew the Torah better than anybody, right? And the reason why he ran from his former teachings is because Jesus radically changed him. But again, they had sabotaged Paul's authority. And in questioning Paul's calling in his office allows these deceptive teachers that had come in to cast doubt on what Paul had presented as to the simplicity of the gospel. Aren't you glad Jesus said that even you have to come as a little child to saving faith? Imagine if you had to have the understanding of war and peace or the Magna Carta to be saved, right? You remember in high school literature, you read some of these books, you, had, you didn't have a clue what they meant, right? Teachers said, what did you all think about this book? You're like... I didn't think a thought. Uh, I, just, I couldn't remember what it even meant, you know. But you would come up with something because you had to pass the class. I always think those classes are funny. I think that, that we read more into them than the authors ever meant. The authors, I didn't mean any of that stuff. What are you all talking about? Pretty simple. But the gospel's simple. And Paul had presented this simple gospel that... Look at the short message that Jesus preached on the road to Damascus. He simply said, go where I send you to go. Stop doing what you're doing and turn to me. Very simple message. We want to take a look this morning 
And a few things here, uh, verses, we'll be covering the rest of the chapter, verse 11 through 23. The first thing we want to look at here is this revelation that he mentions in verse 11 and 12. Uh, Paul's revelation, if you're taking notes, is our first point. But I, make to you know, but I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached to me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. The gospel itself is a revelation from God. The gospel itself is a revelation from God. It's not something that, that church leaders came up with. It's not something the apostles came up with. The apostles received the gospel. They did not write or come up with the gospel. The gospel was before the foundation of the earth. God knew that Adam and Eve would sin, right? He knew that a blood sacrifice would have to be made. We see there in the book of, the Gen book of Genesis that, uh, that the animal skins were put on Adam and Eve. Remember, they tried to use fig leaves, which is a, which is a type of religion. Fig leaves never work. Had to be the shedding of blood, as Hebrews says, for the remission of sin. So from the beginning, God knew that man would sin and that he would sin a sacrifice. But the sacrifice had to be of his choosing, and it would be his only begotten son come down out of heaven. So the gospel would come from God to revelation from God. Unlike all the other religious systems, and what I would call pseudo-solutions, because people are always looking for a solution, aren't they? They're looking for a solution education-wise, political-wise, and religion-wise. They're always looking for a solution. But the gospel comes down out of heaven as the word of God and as the light of God, the same light that blinded Paul. See, Jesus is not just the gospel in word, but he's actually the physical manifestation of the gospel. Any way you can think of the gospel, Jesus is the gospel. The person of Jesus Christ is the personification of the gospel. Nobody could receive the gospel, which is both truth and good news, right? The gospel, it means good news, but it's also pure truth. Nobody could receive the gospel, nobody could understand the gospel, or even respond to the gospel apart from the supernatural grace and revelation of God. You remember when you weren't saved? You remember when you kind of didn't believe things? You needed the grace of God to open your eyes. So did I. Romans 1, verses 1 through 3, and then verse 5, it says, The gospel of God, Paul wrote this as well, the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, through him we have received grace. Through him we've received grace. We've received grace to understand it, to know it, to come to it, receive it. And this is true with everything. I, when, when my uh, daughters are, are studying a subject, I'm like, look, only the... I remember that certain things kind of hit roadblocks in math or hit roadblocks in certain things that only God can unlock your mind. It's a great teaching, parents, when you start to tell your kids that anything you can't understand, God can help you understand... You would not believe the walls you'll blast through. When we start to humble ourselves, say only God can give us understanding of things, even things like schoolwork, even things like maybe an exam you're studying for for your career training or things, God is the only one that can unlock your mind for things. But the greatest thing he unlocks our mind for is the truth of the gospel. It's paramount before all things. In John 1, 9, it says, the true light that gives light to every man. Because we can't create light, we can only what? Receive light. General Electric didn't create light. It just found out how God transfers light. 
God is the giver of light. In the beginning, he said, let there be what? Light. We don't create anything. We simply receive it. We think we're real important when we come up with inventions that God looks at, you know, we were talking at my house about, because a hummingbird was flying through the backyard. They're amazing, aren't they? And they just go, they stop, they go this way, they go up, back, up, forward, down, this way, up. Can't get to that flower, I will tilt my entire body weight this way. Come back, gone. Like, you know that NASA and other companies study the hummingbird? Because they look at it and they're like, how does this thing work? And God just sits back and says, you guys should open a Bible. You'll get a lot more done. Many of the great inventors were that way. Isn't it interesting, though, again, that uh, as I mentioned, Jesus said you had to become his little child. And what he meant by that becoming his little child, when we understand the gospel, it starts with humbling ourselves. Paul had to get what? On his face. The revelation came, but he still had to respond to it. He had to humble himself. But even though we have to humble ourselves, we have to recognize it's supernatural in origin. We have to know that Paul didn't write it, that Peter didn't write it, that John didn't write it. I'm glad I don't have to preach something that came from men. I'm glad when I stand up here because I have no more power in me than you do that I have something supernatural to tell you because it came from God. Zechariah 4.10, it says, Who has despised the day of small things? To many, the gospel may seem too small, too simple. Where's all the ritual? Where's all the ornate gold stuff? And where's all the, the, uh, where, the uh, kind of process and procedures that men love down through history? No. Jesus says, believe on my name and you'll be saved. But there's power in the simplicity of God, like an atom, right? You split an atom, you get an explosion. You unveil the gospel, you get an explosion. Paul verifies that the gospel, the message he will now continually preach the rest of his life, he verifies it didn't come from man. But his own personal revelation, even though the gospel didn't come from man, here's something else here he's talking about. The gospel is, a, is itself a revelation, but Paul's personal revelation, his own life-changing experience and subsequent calling that also didn't come from men, but it was a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, which is different than a lot of other Christians. I got saved, as you, most of you know, uh, at an altar call at Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale, in 1995. There was a physical pastor just like me preaching. Paul didn't get saved that way. It was not a pastor. He actually had Jesus show up on the road to Damascus which is not an everyday experience for most born-again experiences. Amen? So he's telling us two things. One, the gospel's supernatural, but he says, my personal conversion was a bit unique. Wasn't it unique? Well, that's why it's recorded three times in the book of Acts. He outlines here uh, this highly unique encounter. In one aspect, it's common to all of us who've been saved. Paul's conversion in one aspect is common to all of us. And I would ask you all this question. And this is the common part. Have you had a personal encounter with Jesus? Have you had a personal encounter? Not a literally he came down and blinded you on the road of Hall Street. 
or Midlothian Turnpike, which in today's world would be really bad. You'd crash into somebody. But personally, you've met the Lord Jesus Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit. Not religion, but Jesus. A lot of people have religion. A lot of people are Protestant or I'm Methodist or Catholic or this, that, and the other. But no, no, no. I'm talking about a personal relationship with Jesus. There is no salvation apart from a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. There's no other way. But what Paul outlines here is that although uh, he had heard the gospel before, he had actually heard the gospel through Stephen and others. Remember, he was there when Stephen was stoned to death. The day of his conversion, though, Jesus physically arrived in his presence, spoke to him and revealed to him that he was indeed the Lord and Savior. This word revelation, you know what it means? The word revelation means apocalypse. Hollywood does not seem to understand what that word means, by the way. They misuse the term all the time. Apocalypse does not mean World War III. Apocalypse does not mean destruction of humanity, although in apocalypse, those things are foretold, but they are not in and of themselves. The word apocalypse, which is the same word he uses here when he says through the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation means apocalypse in the Greek. What it means is laying bare, a disclosure of truth, instruction specifically concerning those things before that were unknown. They were previously unknown or manifestation or appearance. So when God does revelation or apocalypse in the Greek, it means that he's revealing something that previously was not understood or is kind of dimly understood, and God reveals it and makes it plain and clear. That's why the book of Revelation is called the revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It's not called the revelation or the unveiling of World War III. It's not called the revelation of Armageddon. It's called the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus does reveal things that are going to come that are going to be horrific, but he also reveals very many beautiful things that are come. Part of apocalypse is that we will someday sit down at the marriage supper. That's not a horrific thing. That's a wonderful thing. So revelation means both the things you don't want to be a part of and the things that you do want to be a part of. Now we'll look, at, um, we'll look in just a few minutes uh, at the other apostles. The apostles, they physically saw Jesus. They saw his miracles. They saw his resurrected body. His glory was manifest to them, and they were, in the words of Peter, witnesses to his majesty, or eyewitnesses to his majesty. And we'll look in just a few minutes at the requirements of what it meant to be an apostle. Uh, But Paul's conversion, it saved not only his soul, but it also set the stage for Christ to use him as an apostle. That makes sense? Remember when we read in Acts 26, Jesus said, I have called you to be a minister. He immediately, I mean, at the point of salvation, said, by the way, not am I saving your soul, I'm calling you to be a minister of the gospel. All at the same time. I did not hear that when I got saved. I didn't hear that for several years later. And when I did hear it, I'm like, this, but, uh, you know, you got the wrong guy. But Paul heard it immediately, said, you're, you're going to be called to be a minister of the gospel. Not only that, you'll be an apostle, one of only 12 of them that were ever called. And we'll look at these requirements. But if you think of Paul traveling to Damascus, he's traveling there to Damascus to stamp out Christianity. By the way, the trip to Damascus from Jerusalem 
to Damascus during that time was about a six, at minimum of six-day journey because it wasn't like you drove the car there. You had to take the entourage of donkeys and horses and all that stuff. So it was about a six-day journey or more to get to Damascus. This is the kind of commitment Paul had to getting rid of Christianity. That means six-plus days there, six-plus days back, plus whatever time it took in Damascus to hunt them down inside the city and find everybody. Paul was a rabidly committed man to that mission. I want to give you three things that applied not only to Paul, but to the whole world when he met Jesus. Keep in mind these things as you pray for other people. Three things that applied to Paul, but they apply to everybody on the earth. Number one, you think Paul's going on the way to uh, complete his mission. He might find Jesus. But number one, we find that Jesus seeks us. Isn't that great to know? Did you know that people that you work with, that you think are never going to understand the gospel, Jesus is reaching out to them right now? Do you know that some of them might be at home right now reading their paper and feel conviction and say, why didn't I go to church today? Maybe I should go one week. It happened to many of us here, right? We're not unique. God calls people. Paul was not looking for Jesus, but Jesus came looking for Paul. Number one, Jesus seeks us. Number two, you can be sincere and sincerely wrong about Jesus. Paul was so convinced that Jesus was not the Messiah, not the one sent to Israel, not really raised from the dead, that he was going to hunt down these people who were perpetrating this lie. He thought they were flat-out liars. In fact, they were lovers of God and telling the truth. You can be sincerely wrong about Jesus, but at the same time, be sincere, right? So when you meet people who say, I just don't believe he is who he said, they may be sincere in their statement, but they're still sincerely wrong. People are still blinded, aren't they? They need God to open the eyes. That's why we have to use the word of God. It has impact. And number three, religious people also need salvation. Paul was highly religious. Your religion will never get you to heaven. You'll never be able to say, well, I went to Calvary Chapel. Calvary Chapel holds no weight with God. None. There is not an entry door for Calvary Chapel. Well, I was a Baptist. There's not an entry door for Baptists. Well, I was Presbyterian. There's not an entry door for them either. There's only, were you born again? Religious people need Jesus. None of the efforts of religion will ever bring peace. And in fact, as Paul found in his, they just bring frustration. So that was Paul's revelation. Let's look at uh, the next point here. Paul's past life. He says in verse 13, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church and, of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Paul was a nightmare for the church before he came to Christ. I mean, he would be like a, a, a governor trying to shut down every church in Virginia or you know, some other state or just more like some of the world's worst uh, regimes that you know, put Christians in prison like North Korea and different places. Paul was just a nightmare for the church. He hated Christians. He hated the gospel. He could not stand the followers of Jesus. He writes 
to Timothy, a young pastor that Paul would later mentor and take under his wing. He writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.13, Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy. I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Even people that are doing some of the worst things, many times you're doing them ignorantly. They don't know God, so they doubt everything that they hear about God. Paul didn't know Jesus, so he doubted everything he heard about Jesus. He said he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man. Insolent means to mock or to to persecute or to unfairly injure someone. That's the way Paul was. But we all have a past, don't we? Paul isn't the only one that has a past. We all have a past. Aren't you glad we don't have to live in the guilt of the past? Man, once you've been saved, before you're saved, there's things you might carry a lot of heavy guilt about. If you're not saved today and you're here and you never had Jesus be your Lord, you might carry some guilt. You might have done things that no one on earth knows you did, but God knows you did them. And you'll carry the weight of them until you fall at the foot of the cross. But aren't you glad we don't have to live in the guilt of the past because of God's grace? Paul said, I obtained mercy. Mercy. He, he said, I should have been thrown into hell. But instead, God threw me into the arms of Jesus. We don't have to be in bondage to the past, brother and sister. We can move on in our lives. We can move on and say, I can finally put to rest that that's what I used to be, not who I am today. I mean, if you used to be addicted to drugs or alcohol or a very immoral person, God can actually deliver all of those things. We don't have to live in guilty of that, guilt of that thing, those things. We don't have to be held hostage to past failures. We all hate to fail, don't we? Even at the dumbest things. I lost at ping pong twice last night. I didn't like it. And it was ping pong. But I'm not going to let last night's ping pong loss have any impact on me today. How about that, you know? I can even admit it, that uh, it was a big failure and I'm past it now. Really, but the littlest things can hold us back for a long time, can't they? We don't have to live in past failure. We have a God of new beginnings. But also we can't return to our past. We not only have been delivered from it, but we can't return to it. It's a place of death. Remember, in Israel, they weren't allowed to touch the dead bodies. You don't return. The Nazarene vow, they couldn't touch. Remember, Samson was not allowed to touch something dead. Don't return to the dead places. We know where we've come from, but we can't return there. Peter, one of the other apostles, said in Peter 4, uh, uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, and this really ministered to me when I first got saved, because when I was in college, I bartended. You know, I just, I did a lot of party and all that kind of stuff. But Peter writes, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatry. Just tell us how you feel, Peter, right? (laughs) In regard to these things, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation speaking evil of you. Peter said, look, you're going to have to put that stuff in the rearview mirror. You're not allowed to go hang out the bar scene anymore. You're not allowed to go do those things. You're not allowed to go places where this lewdness and lust is actually on full display. 
said, you spent enough of your last, past lifetime doing that. Now, you don't have to live in the guilt of the past, but Peter said, don't return to it either. That makes sense? Yeah. Leave it behind. Cut the cord. It's not just the sins of the past we leave behind, but we also have to leave behind, or be willing to leave behind, the praise and accolades of men. Paul mentions this here. Look at verse 14. And I advance in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries. Paul's like, I was number one ranked. I was the man. Paul's like, I was the one getting all the backslaps saying, you are so intelligent. You are so much better than your contemporaries. He said, I advanced past them. I was more zealous than them. Paul had four MBAs. That is just one, right? All that kind of stuff. He was really focused on his career success in addition to his zealousness for his, uh, his false belief. But he had a ton of respect prior to being saved. You know, people looked up to Paul prior to being saved. Afterwards, he didn't have that same respect. Brother and sister, when you follow Jesus, you may lose the respect of the world, but gain the favor of God. He advanced. In the Greek, that word means to chop forward. You ever seen like someone in a jungle with a machete chopping a trail through? That's what it means. Paul's like, I was so zealous, I could take a forest, and when I was done, there was a trail. Paul was not a, who's going to lead here? And I'll follow. Paul was a take charge kind of guy. So was Peter. Imagine if God got them both together. You can see in Galatians that sometimes they... <laughs> but um, he, was a blazing, he was blazing a trail of success prior to Christ. He was viewed as someone who would make it to the top of his profession. And this mattered a lot to him. And I don't know if you know, but a lot of people go to hell not because they're out at the bars getting drunk, but because they will live their entire life to receive the accolades of men. Do you realize a lot of people you know, especially when you get in your 40s and 50s, they may not even have an issue with the things that they used to deal with in their 20s. Now the only thing they're living for is that people will look up to them. Paul was headed in that direction. But he left his sins and he left his ambitions in Damascus when he bowed down before Jesus Christ. What can we learn from Paul's willingness to surrender to Jesus? Again, if you want to take three things down, what can we learn from his surrender to Jesus? Number one, we must respond to Jesus with obedience and repentance. That's how Paul responded to Jesus saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He responded with repentance. He said, I was formerly a wicked man. He recognized it not in like, hey, I wasn't as good as I should have been. No, he said, I was a blasphemer. He repented of these things. Number two, we have to humble ourselves. And what happens when we humble? Well, humility opens our eyes. Paul was in darkness. Then he could see Jesus. But the Bible tells in the book of Acts, it was like scales fell off his eyes. He could finally see. Humility opens our eyes. No, God says he gives grace to the humble, and he what? Resist the proud. No proud person in this country or any other can receive salvation until they humble themselves. You'll never be able to get saved saying, well, I still think I'm right, and God, you can learn something from me. We have people that act that way. Paul was that way. He thought he was going to teach Jesus something. And Jesus said, no, I'll, you're going to be on your knees learning from me. Humility opens our eyes. Number three, when we're truly saved, there's a visible change. People could see that Paul was different later on. It was pretty obvious. 
When you walk into town, instead of grabbing someone and putting handcuffs on them, he's putting an arm around. They're like, what, what are you doing, dude? We're afraid of you. We'll get to that in just a second. Paul's life. Let's look at Paul's sanctification. Next couple of verses. Paul's sanctification. Verse 15, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Actually, I'm going to focus on verse 15. We'll, we'll come to the next one here. First question you might ask, it says, when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb. Interesting what Paul writes here, isn't it? From my mother's womb? This just happened recently. First question you might ask, and it's a valid question, were we called and chosen by God, or did we answer his call? Were we called and chosen by God, or did we answer his call? Yes. Yes. You were called, and you had to answer. We're chosen by grace. Now, God knows the beginning from the end, so yes. He had called him from birth. We're saved by grace. We're set apart by grace for the fulfillment of God's wilderness plan for our life. That ultimate plan may be visible very early for some people and may take longer for others. Moses and Abraham, wouldn't you agree with me that their visible plan for their life came kind of late in life? Moses is 80. And he finds out the plan for his life. He, all that sheep herding, God says that was practicing for herding uh, Israeli Hebrew sheep, which he said, can I go back to furry sheep after, uh, you know, after dealing with people? Because people are harder than those of you that have pets. You would say that, man, uh, sometimes the pet is easier than my kids, you know, those kind of things. But it was training ground, and sometimes the plan is visible. Paul was told very early, but again, the plan didn't unfold as quickly as we might think. Paul was, though, he's clearly hand-chosen by God. He's hand-picked. He's transformed, it's obvious, as people start to see his life. But he said he had not arrived. Even later in life, he said, I've not arrived, but I'm still becoming like the Lord. I don't care how long you've been saved, you haven't arrived yet either, and neither have I. And that should always keep us humble, right? We've not arrived we're on the same journey. Now, we're farther down the road, hopefully, but we've not arrived. We're not perfected till we get to heaven. But on this journey, we're continually being perfected. But as we're perfected, Paul, even though he hadn't arrived, he still knew early on his calling. Now, I knew my calling before I was ordained. I had men that laid hands on me and said, you're going to someday be in full-time ministry. That was like six, seven years before I was ordained. So I knew that it was called... And a message I heard once, the call before the call. You'll know kind of the direction. But even when you receive whatever that calling is, that, you know, when you were a teenage girl, ladies, you didn't know if you'd have two kids, three kids, four kids, right? But someday when you see the fulfillment, then you oh, God kind of, I wonder if he knew I was going to have four kids. Yes, he knew. And how they would be structured and how their personality types were, how you were supposed to minister to them. And that's part of your calling. But you don't see it till later. It comes later in life. But he was given a calling. His calling was to preach. His calling was to be an apostle. His calling was to set the doctrinal foundation for the early church. His calling was to reach the Gentile world, 
with the gospel and to strengthen and instruct the church by writing a sizable portion of the New Testament. Paul had a heavy calling, didn't he? This is a pretty big chunk of stuff that Jesus said, you're going you're gonna to deliver all of this. Paul's like, you're kidding? But he would. But his calling as an apostle, it had to be equal to the other 11 apostles, and it was. The requirements of the other 11 apostles, in one sense, again, we can use the word apostolic today as sending forth or laying a ministry foundation, but there is really, in the truest sense of the word, only 12 apostles. But there are apostolic manifestations of ministry, if you will. Does that make sense? But there's only 12 apostles. They'll sit on 12 thrones. And this was the requirements of the apostle. Number one, you had to be one of the 12. Jesus had to have made you one of the 12. There's one replacement because Judas was false. So there was a gap. There was a space available that one had to replace. You had to have been with Jesus in his three-year ministry. Well, Paul doesn't qualify for that. He wasn't with Jesus in his three-year ministry. You had to be a witness of his resurrection. Well, until Damascus, Paul couldn't have been that either, right? And you had to be personally chosen by Christ. Now, you immediately see Paul immediately qualifies for three of the four, doesn't he, right? He becomes one of the 12. Jesus personally calls him, and he sees Jesus' resurrected body. But he still hadn't had that three-year ministry with Jesus. And we'll come back to that. Now, whether you're an apostle, whether you're you're a pastor, whether you're an evangelist, whether you're an accountant, a carpenter, a teacher, an electrician, a stay-at-home mom, a student, a retired senior, God has chosen you still and set you apart for his service to do what? To sanctify you and sanctify you and to reveal Christ in you to the rest of the world. Look at what it says about Paul. That he, that God would use him to reveal, in verse 16, verse 16, to reveal his son in me. God wants to reveal Jesus through you. This word sanctified, it means to be made holy. Be ye holy, for I am holy, the scriptures say. Only God is pure and holy, but we're commanded to be holy. Does that make sense? Isn't it weird that God calls us to do things we actually can't do, and yet he still says to do them? It's a good learning tool, by the way. Um, you know, as parents, you could, you could ask your child to complete a task that you know they couldn't complete, but if they got 50% of it done, and you come in and help them finish the rest, there's actually a lot of learning taking place there. God does this with us all the time. I knew you couldn't finish the task, but... You're moving in the right direction. We're called to be holy. We uh, become more holy the more Christ controls our thoughts, the more he controls our intents, the more he controls our actions, and the more Christ's in control of our lives, the more we what? The more we reveal him in us to other people. And as we're sanctified, as we're growing more like Jesus, he also reveals his plan for our life, which brings us to the next point in Paul's life is his training here. Verse 16 and 17, to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. 
Then after three years, verse 18, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. Paul's initial training uh, might not have been what he expected, and it probably wasn't what others expected either. Um, I put a map up here real quick that you can take a look at. Um, you'll see that, so Paul gets saved right here near Damascus. That's the road to Damascus. But then he says that after salvation, instead of going to Jerusalem where the apostles in the early church was, the Holy Spirit tells him to go where? Down to Arabia. That's nowhere near Jerusalem. It's actually going the opposite direction. He's going west. I mean, he's going east when he had to go west to Jerusalem. So he goes to Arabia. Doesn't confer with flesh and blood. God tells him, I want you to go to Arabia, and that's where he goes. Now, Moses had gone to Arabia, right? When he fled, that's where he went. He went to Arabia. Elijah, when he fled um, Ahab, where'd he go? Arabia. Out into the desert, a dry and desolate desert environment. Paul was led to the same difficult place that his forefathers were when they were strengthened for ministry. Isn't it neat that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever? He sends Paul to the same place that Moses and Elijah had gone before him. David and John the Baptist, they both spent some time in the desert too before the full mantle of the ministry was put on them. And Jesus, he went in the desert to fast and pray before he went out and preached his first sermons. These desert times. Deserts aren't particularly desirable places to be, are they? They're hot. There's little to no water. The food is scarce. There's very little greenery and vegetation. There's what we all love, snakes and scorpions. And in, in that part of Arabia, they have vipers, they have cobras, and they have scorpions. A lovely place to hang out. The days seem longer. The nights can feel as cold as the days feel hot. There's none of the creature comforts that are found in cities and communities. Now, we don't know enough about what Paul did in Arabia. He may have gone in at times into community villages and come back. We don't know exactly where he stayed. God doesn't tell us. Uh, but he says in another place, he mentions, Paul mentions Sinai of Arabia. Well, what does that mean? Well, we know that's where Mount Sinai, that's precisely where Moses and Elijah went. So I believe that Paul gives us a clue when he later mentions Sinai of Arabia. We have an indication that this is the area that he goes to. But regardless, we don't know a lot about what he does there, but we know he's, he's gone and being trained by God for how many years? Three. How many years were the apostles under Jesus' ministry? Three. Paul met Jesus face to face. It, it appears, and we'll find out more when we get to heaven, that God had a special training plan for Paul that was a catch-up to the other apostles' plan. Isn't that neat? How it all worked? I don't know. I'm not here to tell you. We can surmise things, but we'll find out when we get to heaven. And yet, this is the way God sends Paul. This is the way God trains him up. Away from Jerusalem, away from familiarity. He was familiar with Jerusalem. He wasn't familiar with the Arabian Desert. He sent to be isolated with the Lord. Do you see a picture or a pattern? God's training always involves testing, and it often means putting us in places where we're forced to solely rely on him. You say, well, I don't really like that approach. We don't have a choice. God says, this is what's going to make you conform to the image of my son. 
That is my desire for you. Tozer said, God, A.W. Tozer said, God never uses anyone greatly until he tests them deeply. Uh, that can kind of make us afraid, but Jesus told us not to be afraid, to trust him, to obey him. Now, this kind of testing is especially true of men called to leadership. This is why you must be called. Very few men would ever take on the high callings of God and the desert training that comes with it unless they knew God's hand had been laid on them. I would never do what I'd do, ever, if I didn't think God had called me to it. Because, first of all, the goals are way too high, the needs are too great, the attacks are too strong, you better know God is with you to go to deserts, right? John the Baptist, he had God's call in his life, didn't he? Right? Moses had it. David had it. And they could be confident, even though they at times were shaking like a leaf. Paul said he would come to people fear and trembling. You have to have that calling. But in a wider sense, all Christians have been called to be servants of the Lord, and all of us will be put through tests that change us and strip us of our self-reliance. Did you know that God is going to strip every believer of self-reliance? Yes, he will. One of the problems in our country today is we still are self-reliant. We still think we can solve every problem. I don't care if you're Republicans or Democrats or this, that. You know, we think we can solve everything. We, let me get, get news for you. We can't. God says you can't solve anything unless you turn to me. But that's true of us personally, too. A couple aspects of Paul's three-year ministry away from the early church that I want you to understand. Jesus had trained the disciples for three years. And the Jewish leaders understand these are practical reasons why God may have sent him away. Not only, not only because of the fact that, hey, this is what I'm going to do in Paul's life personally, but also you can understand from a practical perspective that Paul could later say, hey, I had a three-year training, just like the apostles did. I had a three-year training. The Jewish leaders, remember, they would have killed Paul if he came back to Jerusalem from Damascus because he had changed sides. Right? He couldn't go back to Jerusalem. He was let out of Damascus out of a basket. Did you realize that? He, he barely escaped Damascus. They put him over the wall and let him down in a basket and said, have fun wherever you're going. Do you, do you have any bread, water? Do you know where you're going? Uh, I'm headed south of the desert. Hope it all turns out for me. There were people in Damascus looking for him as well. The church, having not seen Paul for three years, uh, and, but yet knowing the authorities weren't happy with him, might have been finding a little more softened when he does show up. Because they're like, well, we've seen them hunting him for three years. Maybe if he does show up, he's not going to kill us. But at any rate, he finally makes it to Jerusalem, where he says in verse 18 that after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter. He finally makes it to Jerusalem where the church was born and commissioned by Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit took place there in Pentecost. And we'll close with these last couple of verses Paul's fellowship. He said, after three years, I came to Jerusalem, see Peter, remained with him for 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, who writes the book of James. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. Afterwards, I went to the region of Syria and Cilicia. This came after he leaves Jerusalem. And I was unknown to the face of the churches of Judea who were in Christ. So the only people he saw was a handful in Jerusalem. The wider church in Judea didn't meet him on this first trip to Jerusalem. Verse 23, 
But they were only hearing who, who, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches faith, which he once tried to destroy. What an amazing testimony. The guy who was the worst and hated us the most is now telling our same message to everyone he meets and doing it bolder than we do. That's the thing. When God gets a really, really obstinate person saved, they become some of the brightest lights of all. Remember the demoniac? Jesus sends him on an, a mission trip. I mean, when you were running around naked, cutting yourself, it makes quite an impression when you're all of a sudden dressed and talking about Jesus, right? God makes these radical changes in people. But I want to focus at the end here, at Paul's fellowship, and then verse 24, and they glorified God and me. We come to a close with this. God may put us through times of training and testing, and we might feel alone during those times, but his plan always involves, and will always involve, the family of God. We are not just Calvary Chapel Richmond. We are a family knitted together by the Holy Spirit and by the blood of Jesus. When Paul arrived in Jerusalem, at first, people, even after three years, we know from other texts, still were leery of meeting him and were a little afraid of him. Even when he first got there, it wasn't like he ran up to Peter, Peter ran up to him, they said, and it was slow motion music. It didn't go like that. But actually Barnabas, you guys probably heard of Barnabas in the book of Acts, who would later travel with Paul on missionary journeys, Barnabas was the first one to boldly go up and put his arm around Paul and say, I'm standing with this guy. It's always a good idea to stand with an apostle anyway, by the way. Barnabas seized God's call in his life, puts his arm around him. Barnabas' name means son of encouragement. And he lived up to his name, didn't he? And it tells us in Acts chapter 9, verse 27, it was Barnabas who brought him to Peter. Do you know some of you, you may not be the pastor, but you can be the Barnabas. You can bring a coworker here to be, hear the gospel and be saved. You can, when someone walks in the front door, put an arm around them. Well, be careful that people can wear it out by that metaphorically, you can put an arm around him, but welcoming people. You can be a Barnabas. And Barnabas brings him to Peter, and Peter does embrace him then. It's so important to warmly welcome people here in this fellowship and in your personal lives, wherever, to welcome people, whether they're saved or unsaved. You need to welcome them. Just consider as one of my friends, Dr. Hertz, called pre-believers. Barnabas is a great example, but, um, but Paul, he needed the love, didn't he? He needed to know that he'd been forgiven by the church. He needed to know that people still said, hey, that's the past. You're now a new man in Christ. You know, when people get saved, you've got to let them know that they don't have to live in the past anymore. You've got to welcome them in. They've got to put an arm around. Paul needed them. He needed the encouragement. He didn't need validation as an apostle. He makes that clear that, no, I, that I'm good with. Once you have a Damascus road, you know God's called you. He didn't need their validation, but he did need their arm of fellowship. He needed to know he wasn't alone in the battle. You need to know you're not alone in the battle. You're not alone. People around you are going through similar things. They just aren't telling you at times. It's true. No man is an island, not even apostles. Apostles 
strong men, but they're not islands. Acts 2.42 and 44, it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and the breaking of bread and prayer. Now, all who believed were together. In John 13.35, this should be true of us in this church. By this, all will know that you're my disciples, that you have love for one another. This is the only way people will know that Jesus changed us if we love one another. He's made us to need one another. Paul needs something from Peter. Peter needs something from Paul. Whether they know it or not, God's made us that way. That's why we have marriage. You as a wife and you as a husband, you bring something different to the table. It's the way God made it. We gather here today because we need one another. We need to worship together because we personally need it, but also because it demonstrates God's desire to have a family of adopted sons and daughters from different ethnicities, from different past lives, from different past struggles, from different past failures, different backgrounds that reflect his grace to the world. That's why he gathers the church. Not to check a box. Not to say, did you go to church on Sunday? And we don't isolate, but we integrate. Why? Because we demonstrate. We demonstrate God's unity and harmony. I love this quote from from George Buttrick, he said, For a man to argue, I do not need to go to church, I pray alone, is no wiser than he should say, I have no use for symphonies, I believe only in solo music. God doesn't believe in solo music. He believes in symphonies. Paul's, and people like Paul, with dark and transformed past, blended with Peter's, who had past failures, and blended with those who are raising godly homes, and blended with those who are from Europe, or South America, or Africa, or whatever. He puts them all in the same place and says, now you're going to be a symphony. And by the way, a violin doesn't look anything like a trumpet, which doesn't look anything like a flute, which doesn't look anything like a set of drums. And yet, when you put it all together, what do you get? One sound. That's what God does. And then the result, in verse 24 and they glorified God in me. That's the result. God is glorified. Wow. Look at what he's done through this group of people is what people should say from a distance. Look at all the broken lives that he's turned into peace and joy and harmony. And you see, the call of Paul, in a larger sense, is the call of us all. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you. Lord, that through one life, we see a prism, if you will, a reflection of a multifaceted view of what you're doing in the body of Christ at large. And Lord, I pray that uh, as your servant Paul responded with obedience and humility, Lord, we would do the same. That as you take us through testing periods of deserts and trials, we'd come out and Lord, not be focused on some individual personal plan, but we come together with the body, the larger body, and Lord, you'd knit us together that all would be glorified and lives that are changed, individual lives as one collective unit, whether it be families here or one larger church family, Lord. The call of Paul, Lord, we clearly see that you're calling us as well. And Lord, I pray that we would willingly go forward, forsaking the past, not living in the past, being liberated from the past, but Lord, going forward to the great work you've set before us. 
whatever that may be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.